All right, well, next week we're going to be picking back up in our study in Philippians. Uh, Next week we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. But this morning I would like for you to open your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 37, which hopefully will be a reminder to us all that many times inside of us, we hold on to a copious amount of pride, yet deep down, that honor is reserved for the humble. And we'll see that in our text today. Here in Mark chapter 9, at the end of the section where verse 32 is, Mark had just finished a, a section where the apostles, because of their lack of faith, could not cast a demon out of a young man. And if you remember, Jesus had to come in and do it himself. In my opinion, that is a a very good teaching lesson, not just for the apostles, but certainly for us as well, because it always challenges us in our faith. Because you see, folks, whether we admit it or not, many times we fail no different than the apostles did. One minute we can, we can talk up the Lord, we can brag about His faithfulness, we can tell others about what He has done in our lives, and then all of a sudden we're going through um, a trial, something that has caught us off guard, and then our faith gets weak and we just forget about what we had just boasted about in the Lord. Because as soon as something hits us, it's troublesome. Our trust in God cannot be reserved for just the good times, right? When times are going smoothly. I mean, how hard is that anyway, right? It's pretty simple when life is going well. But a true assessment of who we really are is when we are being tested. And the desire of God is that when that happens, our faith in Him remains. Our faith in Him is immovable, no matter the situation in our lives. Now, if you back up just a few more verses in verse 24, I think we can learn something about that from the demon-possessed boy's father during his time of, of anguish. In verse 24, he responds to Jesus and he says, I do believe, because Jesus just talked about believing. He says, I do believe, but then he says, help me in my unbelief. And hopefully that that statement in itself kind of hits home. Hopefully we're sincere enough to recognize that we are no different. And just like the Father did, sometimes we have to ask or seek the Lord's help. He said, help me in my unbelief. Many times we can say, yeah, I believe that, but I don't act it out, or I don't, maybe I don't really trust the Lord as much. Do we just admit it? Or do we seek the Lord's help to overcome that? It's one thing to admit that we have a weakness. It's another thing to seek help, therefore wanting to overcome that. Okay. Well, after Jesus cast the demon out of this boy, verse 30 tells us that Jesus and the twelve left this location, what we now know as Caesarea, Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And it says they began their final descent towards Jerusalem. 
Well, on their way, they obviously have to go through the region of Galilee. Remember, there's Galilee and then Samaria and then Judea, right? If you want to split it up in three ways. So they're above Galilee and Caesarea Philippi, and they're headed south, okay? Well, on their way, they go through the region of Galilee. Our text this morning, it says they stopped in the city of Capernaum, okay? Now, before they reached that destination, verse 31, it tells us that Jesus, for only the second time, he tells the apostles in no uncertain terms. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise again. Now, I can't emphasize this enough. These apostles really must learn to accept this. Okay, Remember, uh, uh, at this point, a suffering Messiah does not fit well to them. It makes really no sense to them at all. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that a crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. In other words, a crucified Messiah is not in their theology. They expected a conqueror. They expected a powerful political heavyweight, if you will, that would ultimately take down Rome. They didn't expect some, some meek, lowly, uh, impoverished servant such as Jesus. And this is also why in the Gospel of Luke, right before Jesus mentions his betrayal and subsequent death, Luke records him saying, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. Obviously, they didn't do a very good job at that. These 12 men must get ready for what is going to take place leading up to the cross and then, of course, the very cross itself. Now, at this point, we have reached the point of our text this morning. So hopefully you're already there. In Mark chapter 9, I want to start reading in verses 33, or verse 33 and go through verse 37. He now says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept silent, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve, and he said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So as you can see here, beginning in verse 33, we see that Jesus and the twelve have now arrived at Capernaum. Okay, Capernaum, by the way, is just sitting right on top of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? We all know where the Sea of Galilee is. Right thing, right on top. Um, and as they arrive, you'll notice the first thing it says is in verse 33, and it says they went to the house. And notice it's not a house. It is actually the house. He's, there is a distinction between the definite article the and and a house, and that is probably because our guess is it is the home of Peter and Andrew, all right? 
for those of you who have been to Israel before, you actually, they will take you to what they believe, if you remember that. They'll take you to what they believe is that very area right there. They have something on top of it now, but they believe that was formerly the home of Peter and Andrew. John chapter 1, verse 44 says that they were from Bethsaida. But here in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, we know they did have a house in Capernaum. And because Jesus and the rest of them seem to kind of just settle right in on numerous occasions in the Gospels, there's certainly a good chance that this was their home. This was certainly the place to go through, a place to settle in at. But most importantly, when we get into the house here, Jesus has a question for the twelve. And that question is, what were you arguing about on the road. Now, Jesus, of course, already knew the answer to that. We're known that by Luke 9, 47. He knew their thoughts, so he already knew the answer to it, okay? Therefore, the question is really just brought up in order to use it as a teaching opportunity, kind of as I'm doing today. I'm bringing up, I'm using this passage as a teaching opportunity. And so what had taken place, as Jesus just said, is they were all on the road, right? That's that hike from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Capernaum, okay? As I mentioned a minute ago, it's about 30 miles, okay? Which generally speaking, you go about 20 miles a day, depends on the terrain, but about 20 miles a day. So you're looking at at about a day and a half walk from one to the other, okay? And with that kind of distance uh, uh, on foot, The apostles had a lot of time to discuss many things, right? A day and a half walking. They got a lot of time to discuss things. Now, in the NIV, instead of using the word discuss, it uses the word argue. Now, the actual meaning of the Greek word really isn't that strong. It it simply means to dialogue. Actually, the Greek word is dialogizomai, where we get our word, dialogue. It simply means to reason together. Okay, But in saying that, I believe that it's translated argue because of the subject matter, which of course we see in the very next verse. And knowing what that is, you know this discussion, I'll guarantee you got a little bit heated. Matter of fact, I would say it was probably somewhat of a spirited debate. Okay, It actually went so far, we know, that when asked, it says they were embarrassed to even talk about it. They didn't want to say anything, okay? Notice the first part there in verse 34. It says, but they kept quiet. Folks, Jesus just asked them a simple question, didn't he? Remember, they're traveling. They got all that time, 30 miles. He says, what were you guys talking about? Right? You guys are chatting it up. What's going on over there? Nobody said a word. (laughs) Actually, the first thing that came to my mind was it reminded me back from like elementary days. You remember back in the elementary school days or or maybe the junior high school days and the, the teacher caught you talking? You teachers in here, you're grinning right now. Remember the teachers caught you talking And they would usually, like for me, they would say something like, well, excuse me, Mr. Holland. I was Mr. Holland even when I was eight years old. Is there something that you'd like to say? You guys remember that when the teacher would say something? You're shaking your head yes because you're a teacher. 
Mr. Holland, is there something that you'd like to say? Matter of fact, why don't you stand up in front of the class and let everybody know what is so important that you couldn't wait till recess, right? You guys are going, oh yeah, I remember those days. Ken, you're in a full daze right now. <laughs> we remember those kinds of times. But you knew you couldn't say anything because you were going to be humiliated. Whatever it is that you were talking about with your neighbor, you obviously didn't want the whole class to hear about it. This is exactly what took place with the apostles when they were thinking, why didn't they answer Jesus, right? Well, we're told right there in verse 34, they were arguing who was the greatest. Think about that argument for a second. Now, if you're honest, and I'm not going to ask you if you are, because every one of you are going to lie right now, so I'm not even going to ask the question. If you're honest, everyone in this room, at one time or another, has thought to themselves that you were better than the next guy. You thought it. You didn't tell everybody, but you thought it. You're better than the next guy. Maybe you're better looking than the next person. Maybe you're more talented Maybe you have a higher IQ or you're a harder worker or whatever it is you thought that about yourself. We probably all have at one time or another. But who grabs 11 of their closest friends and literally has a discussion group about it? <laughs> Who's the greatest, right? Sounds more like the Pharisees, if you go back to Scripture, than it would or should the apostles. Now, my guess is that this, quote, discussion was probably, I say probably, probably fueled by the fact that Peter, James, and John were chosen by Jesus to go with him up Mount Hermon, which was the transfiguration, okay? And how the other nine apostles had to stay down below, okay? Now, bear in mind, this just took place right before they left Caesarea Philippi. Matter of fact, it's still here in chapter 9. That's how the chapter begins with the transfiguration. So it has just taken place probably a week ago, okay? And all that took place, the transfiguration, but Peter, James, and John got to go up and see it all, and the others had to stay below, okay? And so really, this trip from Caesarea Philippi down Capernaum was really the first opportunity they had to actually discuss this matter, okay? And with all of the apostles still not understanding Jesus' future suffering, it talks about that in verse 32, and therefore they still believed that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. Okay, Matthew, in his account, actually says this. It says the apostles, talking about themselves, asked Jesus, hey, so tell me, who, who's the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> Can you imagine that? So, so here, here's all 12 of us lined up here. Hey, Jesus, so tell me. Go ahead, go ahead. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Can you imagine that question? That's a pretty amazing question right there. They were literally jockeying for positions in what they thought was going to be an earthly kingdom. Okay, Because remember, they didn't grasp everything at this point. They still did not understand so it's like, would obtaining a, a rank, if you will, right now assure the privilege in the kingdom? Come on, Jesus, who's the greatest? Would Peter always be the one who spoke for everybody? Would it be him? 
Would Peter, James, and John somehow maybe be, be chief place amongst Jesus? But can you imagine the back and the forth amongst this discussion, the bragging, the, the self-exaltation, right? Can you imagine sitting around the water cooler having that discussion of who's the greatest? That, that would be an amazing conversation to listen to. Now, as far as how the conversation went, we really don't know. He doesn't tell us who started it, doesn't tell us who won the argument, what was said to whom. We honestly don't know the details. But what we do know is what they should have been talking about. See, I read it earlier. Let me read it again. I'm going to read verse 31 and go into verse 32. Where Jesus looks at the apostles, he says, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. He blatantly just tells them straight up, and they did not understand what he meant. As bizarre as that might seem, of course, to me and you, as Jews, they just could not join the word Messiah with I will be betrayed. They couldn't take the word Messiah and say I will be killed. They could not put that together. To them, it was like oil and water. They can mix it as much as they want, as hard as they want. It just wasn't going to work. Messiah and death and betrayal. What? What are you talking about? That's kind of their, their thinking. But knowing they didn't understand, don't you think that in itself could have been a good reason for a discussion as part of the group instead of trying to figure out who's the greatest? How about something like, hey, guys, did you catch that? What, I didn't get it. What, what, Jesus said something that he was going to die. He was going to be killed. Did, did I misunderstand that? What, what did you guys hear? That would be the discussion, especially since they didn't know what it meant. But no, their Messiah just said, unbeknownst to them, he's going to die. And all they can think of is, ha, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? In my opinion, it was pride, it was the winner of the argument. Pride was the winner of the argument. At this point, they had already walked this earth for two and a half years, and the one that they believed to be the Messiah, the one they believed to be the Son of God, the one in whom they knew to have literally the power over every sickness, every disease, the one they saw with their own eyes literally speak to nature and have it stop. Yet their focus was on themselves. It was on them. And, but, and it wasn't just them meaning the apostles, it was also them meaning everyone. Remember, they're asking who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. Imagine the jealousy, imagine the envy, imagine the self-importance of who should get that job as if I deserve it, right? Let me tell you something, folks. Pride is very hard to shake. And I'm sure most of us know that. Matter of fact, we're going to see this in the very next chapter 
In chapter 10, it got even worse. Turn over there real quick. Chapter 10, just turn a page over probably. I'm going to start in verse 32. The second half of verse 32, it says, Again, speaking of Jesus, again he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. Okay? Listen. Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, who will spit on him, who will flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Go into verse 35. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Did you catch that? Hey guys, by the way, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me, torture me, mock me, and kill me. Uh, Jesus, I have a question. <laughs> I want you to give us whatever we ask. That's an odd time, right? <laughs> so Jesus said, what, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. <laughs> Think about that just for a second. Pride's a little tough, isn't it? Proud people battle for position. Well, it's time for Jesus to step in. Back in chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. And he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So Jesus here, he sits down, which is really the sign of his position as a teacher or as a rabbi. And he calls the 12 over to him in preparation for a life lesson. This is not something simple for right now. This is a life lesson lesson. Okay? And so what Jesus does here is he gives them the answer of which one is going to be the greatest. He's going to answer that question. I'm sure he shook his head at first. Are you kidding me? That's what you guys are arguing about? But he says, I'm going to answer your question. How one can be looked by God himself and be the, this, this essence of greatness, how can that be? To be great, to be the highest position in the kingdom, being first, if you will, Jesus said, you must be the very last and the servant of all. Can you imagine the look on the, the apostles' face? What? Right? If Jesus was talking to you and me today, he would probably say, you think the path to being first, to being greatest in the kingdom is to promote yourself. Putting yourself on a pedestal. This isn't the world. This isn't politics. This isn't Hollywood. We're not talking about climbing the corporate ladder. 
bettering your position in life. Jesus says, we're talking about my kingdom. The standards of this world are not God's standards. Greatness is not determined by status. And this is where the apostles went wrong. They, like most of us, needed a lesson in humility. Being great in the eyes of God is not about ourselves, is it? Lord, did I tell you how many times I went to church last year? Did I tell you that I spent my money, that I, on, I bought myself a new Bible, myself, me? I bought myself a new Bible. Lord, do you know that I memorized Scripture? Those things are not wrong, obviously, in and of themselves. But that doesn't describe those who are great in the kingdom. Number one, those who are great in the kingdom don't spout off what they do. Number two, their favorite words are not me, myself, and I. Once again, can you imagine listening to these guys arguing and arguing and arguing about who was the greatest? How many times, if you sat here, would those words come up? If you ever sat here and analyzed uh, a presidential speech, it could have been Obama, it could have been Trump. doesn't matter. They're both arrogant people. Listen to their speech and how many times the word I, myself, me, it's all they do. Sometimes they were over 90 times in one speech. It's all about themselves. See? Jesus says to be first, you must be the last. What does that mean? It means on a scale of 1 to 10, if you want to be a 10, you have to humbly lower yourself to a one. Greatness, being first, is determined by servanthood, being last. First will be last. The last will be first. See? And the servant he's talking about here is not, is not a servant as in a position, as that the only job you can have is the lowest job out there. It's not doulos, it's not a slave. Okay? It's one who attends to the needs of others freely. Freely. That is the essence of true greatness, Jesus says. If you want to be here, I want to see you here. To quote MacArthur, he says, The point is, if what you want is the accolades and the affirmation and the exaltation of men, you forfeit the real reward you find true honor when you are willing to be last and not when you have to be first. To quote from the next chapter, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 10, once again, this explains it a little bit, but in verses 43 through 45, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you, okay, he's talking to the 12, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Folks, if there's anybody who understands this, it's Christ, right? I mean, he literally set the standard. The Bible calls him the King of Kings, right? We all know that the Lord of Lords, it calls him the great high priest, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of glory, and we can just keep going. Jesus did not pursue those things. He was those things. And yet, as we just read from chapter 10, he did not come here to be served. If there was anybody who certainly deserved it, it wouldn't have been an issue of arrogance or pride. It would have been Jesus. But he says, even after all that, he says, I came to serve, not to be served. In Chuck Swindoll's book, this is a book that we went through, guys, the guys group went through this many, many years ago, actually. It's called Improving Your Serve. It's written by Chuck Swindoll. He says here, Chuck says, I've been involved in a serious study of Scripture for nearly 40 years. And all that time I have found only one place where Jesus Christ, in his own words, describes his inner man. In doing so, he uses only two words. Unlike celebrities, those words were not phenomenal, great. He doesn't even mention that he's some kind of a sought-after speaker. Although it's true, Jesus doesn't say, I'm wise, I'm powerful, I am holy, I'm eternal. I'm all-knowing, I am absolute deity. But here's what he did say. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. But wait a minute. Isn't he the king of kings? Yes, he is. But he himself decided not to describe himself with titles. Instead of who he is, he proclaims what he is. He is gentle and he is humble. And what better way to illustrate that? You find it in, in John 13. We all know what took place there at the, what we know as the Last Supper. As you know, it's Jesus sitting there. He's getting ready to eat his, his, uh, his Passover meal with the apostles before, right before he goes to the cross. Give you a little background information. I go back to the book. It says the scene before us in this chapter occurred in the first century Jerusalem. Paved roads were few. In fact, within most cities, they were unheard of. The roads and the alleys in Jerusalem were more than uh, winding dirt trails, all covered with a thick layer of dust. When the rains came, those paths were liquid slush, several inches of thick mud. It was the custom, therefore, for the host to provide a slave at the door of his home to wash the feet of the dinner guest as they arrived. The servant knelt with a pitcher of water, a pan, and a towel 
and wash the dirt or mud off the feet of each guest prepared to enter their home. Shoes, boots, and sandals were left at the door, a custom still prevalent today in the Far East. If a home could not afford a slave, one of the early arriving guests would graciously take upon himself the role of the house servant and wash the feet of those who came in. What's interesting is that none of the disciples, none of the twelve, had volunteered for that lowly task. Do you remember the upper room? You didn't see any of the the apostles say, oh, well, shoot, that's fine, I'll do it. Oh, that's right, they were arguing about who was the greatest just right before that, right? So the room, he says, was filled with proud hearts and dirty feet. Interestingly, though, those disciples were willing to fight for a throne, but not a towel. Things haven't changed a lot since then, he says. Jesus rose, as you know, from the supper and taking a towel, he girded himself and he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel in which he was girded. As I said earlier, a true servant has the mindset of humility that will express itself in voluntary service to others. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and all those things I mentioned, did not stand up and say, all right, listen up. You guys are a bunch of screwballs. Let me give you an example of what you should have done. Because he would have put himself in the role of the teacher, right? He didn't. He didn't say any of that. He put himself in the role of what? The servant. He didn't say it. He didn't say, well, I'm going to do it for you. Fine. He just got up and washed everybody's feet. Because once again, they just got through traveling wondering who's the greatest. I'm not going to do that. The great don't do that, do they? And Jesus showed them, well, actually, yeah, they, they do. They do. Lastly, in verses 36 and 37, it says, He took a little child, this is Jesus, He took a little child and He had Him standing among them, taking Him in His arms, obviously not a very big child there, He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. From there, I'm going to drop back real quick to Matthew chapter 18. And I just want to read something that Mark didn't say. In chapter 18, Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, Jesus called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, listen to this, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus just uses a very simple object lesson of what he just spoke about in verse 35. He takes a young child, holds him in his arms, probably one from the house there. He says, I want you to look at this child, he says. And by the way, in in Aramaic, uh, the word for child and the word for servant 
are the same. Okay? And by knowing this, I'm sure it made a, a bigger distinction here for them between the greatness that they were looking for and the humbleness that came from this young child. Everyone there understood that this little child had nothing to offer them. Nothing. He's a little child. He had not achieved anything in life. He had not made a mark for himself at this point. There was no boasting. There was nothing that he could have bragged about. He just had nothing to offer the adults. It's a simple, humble child. And therefore the point, these apostles, just like all of us in this room today, are being told to be like the child. He says, it's not about the accolades. What did he do for me? What, right? what, what's his title? All those things. It's not about the accolades. We must humbly recognize that Jesus already paid the price for us to enter into his kingdom. We didn't do anything about it. Any greatness that we have comes from our humble service to the Lord. It's not a title, it's not a position, it's not your status in this world. Jesus said, the last shall be first. And lastly, in verse 37, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And therefore, he says, the Father as well. Jesus, as you know, does not look at you and say, wow, you make how much? What's your title again? CEO, right? You live in an exclusive neighborhood? Wow, that's awesome. And the reason is because that's how the world looks at people. See? They focus on the rich. They focus on the great. They focus on the wealthy, the celebrities, the famous, if you have this certain last name, and so forth. But that was the principal mindset of the apostles, wasn't it? Huh? I want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Instead of seeking a place of service, they were seeking positions of advantage. We're going to have an earthly kingdom in their mind. I want the advantage. I should be greatest. And therefore, their response to washing somebody's feet is, I don't think so. But not Jesus, though. With that same passion the world has for power and prestige, Jesus has a heart to do what the world sees as insignificant. Jesus pursued those things that were insignificant because he's just the opposite. He didn't, he didn't want to be out in the open, look at me, give me a title, give me a big paycheck, whatever it is. He, he pursued what the world goes, are you kidding me? He says, Exactly. You see, folks, when this scripture was written, children were literally inconsequential. They were unimportant. Matter of fact, it really became the same thing in the Greco-Roman system. But not here, though, not with Jesus. True greatness entails, he says, caring about people, he says. Even insignificant people, 
like the child or a servant who washes feet, right? And you do that because Jesus cares about them. That, that's his point. If it's none other than that, he says, you care about them because I care about them. But that doesn't settle very well for those who want to be the greatest. See? They want people to boast about them, right? They want the accolades. They want to go up that social ladder. They want someone who's going to add to their lives, not take them down, not humble them. They want the big corner office where they make a million a year as a CEO. And people have to knock on the door, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am. That's what they pursue. How do people look at me? But Jesus, as you know, has already made it clear that kind of greatness he's not interested in. He's in fact, don't care. And that being the case, embrace those that don't have anything to offer you. Because sometimes we do that. Well, that guy's not going to do anything for me. He's going to make me look bad. People are going to stare. He, he can't pay me very well or whatever the question may be. Look at those who are not worthy according to society. And when you do that, Jesus says, you are embracing me. Very simply, as I mentioned earlier, we have to go directly against what the world offers, which is what Jesus does. Jesus pursues that which the world sees as insignificant. And so for us, we have to be the opposite of what the world stands. It doesn't mean you can't do a great job and get a raise or go to the next level or whatever, but is, is that your heart? Is that what you're pursuing? Is that your goal in life? Because it's that person you'll hardly ever see. If it's that million-dollar CEO in the corner you won't see on the Saturday workday. You won't see him there. He's too good for that. And I've heard that with pastors. I actually asked the question one day, hey, where's pastor so-and-so? He, he's not here. He's the pastor. Oh, okay. <laughs> he can't pull a weed? He can't move a broom? It's sad. And so for us, certainly this is a challenge. The first will be last. The last shall be first. We have to look in our minds and our hearts. What are we pursuing? What are we trying to throw out there? What do we want in return? Dave talked about it a little this morning. It's really that mindset in your own heart. Certain things aren't bad. You know, if you have a lot of money or if you don't have a lot of money and how you look at things. But we have to begin to, uh, to realize what our position is. It's a humble position, folks. We're only entering the kingdom of God because of Christ, not because of anything else. And so there should always, there should always be that, that humility. Never that, who's the greatest? I have that new title or whatever. And so I thought it'd be a great sermon just to remind us of life, because I think all of us, um, even though we might not be like a lot of others, we can still get caught up in things like that. Same. And so it just reminds us of who we are in Christ, and Christ paid it all. We, we don't even deserve the kingdom. We should be grateful and be thankful that we can do it, and, and never be so proud that you can't do some other job, and never find yourself in a situation where you're just bragging all about yourself and how much better you are.
than somebody else. As I mentioned before, I didn't ask people to raise their hands, whoever did this before, because everybody would lie. Nobody wants to admit that, but everybody's done it. So that's our challenge from God's word today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, we had this time to go through this. Um, Lord, it's certainly a reminder. Um, It's certainly one of those texts uh, for any teacher, for any pastor. Um, It's almost something you want to avoid because you have to look at that in your own heart, in your own life. And and so, Lord, I pray that this text today, um, this short five verses or so, uh, would be a reminder to us. Here you have the apostles who were with Christ, and yet all wondering and bragging about who's the greatest, even asking Jesus that same question. Lord, may our our hearts never be that way. May we look and say, how can I help? What can I do? Not, am I the greatest? And Lord, as we think about that verse, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. What are we looking for in this world? Lord, help us, Lord, not to do what we do for the pat on the back to get our face in the newspaper or anything else. But whatever it is that we do, however we're blessed, just to, to give all the glory to you, because whatever was done by us, it's only because you did it through us. And so may we always live a life of, of having a humble heart in who we are and exalting you along the way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.